Hey, hey, happy Tuesday and welcome to the Pathfinder Experience. This is Ryan Duffy, Managing Editor of Payload, and as of the time you're hearing this, host of Pathfinder. Pathfinder is a new weekly show where we'll be sitting down with top shot callers in space. Up first in the hot seat is Michael Suffredini, the President and CEO of Axiom Space. Axiom is a space unicorn building space stations and, as you can tell, we love space. Michael is one of the world's few foremost authorities on space station development and operations, and he spent three decades at NASA. Axiom recently clinched a world's first, and we will get into all of that. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Our reliance on satellites for navigation, communications, commerce, and intelligence has grown exponentially in the new space economy. Unfortunately, the risks have grown as well, and the need to prioritize cybersecurity around space assets is critical. Spider Oak Mission Systems provides space cybersecurity products for military, commercial, and civilian operators. Their Orbit Secure solution is the first to deliver zero-trust security to zero-gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity at the data level. To learn more about Orbit Secure, check out their website at spideroak-ms.com. Again, that is spideroak-ms.com. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Pathfinder Episode 1 with Michael Suffredini. Welcome, Mike, to the show. Thank you, Ryan, so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So it was a very busy month, some might say, for, for Axiom. Uh, yes, the conclusion of all that was uh, a launch on April 8th of the AX-1 crew, uh, which is the first commercial, fully commercial mission to the International Space Station uh, that we launched on uh, April 8th. And the crew spent 17 days in orbit, 15 of those on the International Space Station before coming home. And we are recording just over a week after the crew came home, splashed down off the Florida coast. And it was certainly a historic moment. I'm wondering, have, Absolutely. Ha have you had a moment to catch your breath or are you all full steam ahead? Before the launch, you try to have a a little launch party to sort of celebrate, uh, get into that moment. And then post-landing, uh, we had a little event for the crew and the team to sort of congratulate ourselves. But other than that, we're on to the next thing. We, of course, there's quite a few lessons learned, and we have to do that together with our partners, with the crew, with SpaceX, with NASA. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that brings up, okay, what are we doing for AX2, which is already on the books and we're working towards. But meanwhile, we're in the middle of our Series C raise. We've signed three countries in the last, oh, I don't know, month as well. And we're building our modules still. And that's picking up steam since we launched the first one in late 24. So it was hard to just sit back and relax. We jumped right back into the fire. I'm not sure we ever left the, I think they say the frying pan in the fire. So we're still, we're just going, we just keep going, yeah. but it's what we like to do. So it's okay. So I'm dying to know how many hours of sleep were you averaging a night while the AX-1 crew was in orbit? And how much does that, that differ from the, the normal average? Well, actually, I averaged less hours before the crew launch. Okay. Uh, once they got to ISS, I started, you know, you're watching it very closely and playing close attention. But at that point, it's really in the hands of the operations guys. 
I talked to the crew two or three times during the flight, but largely that might have been the most relaxing time I've had is while they were on orbit and enjoying things and everything going well. So yeah, about five hours a night before the launch, although I don't average much more than that in general. It's not your first rodeo. Yeah, no, it's not my first, our first flight, no. I wanted to ask, on that first mission, you had to contend with Florida weather, a tense geopolitical situation that at least rhetorically has reached the ISS, and then plenty of other developments, some of which were public, some of which I'm sure weren't all public. Did anything catch you by surprise, or what was the most unexpected part of the mission? That's an excellent question. I'm trying to decide in my mind whether anything was a surprise per se. You just listed a pretty good list of all the things that happen when you try to launch. So those are, like you said, I've done this a few times. So you learn not to get too married to a launch date and try to give yourself as many opportunities to launch as possible. Whether Probably the biggest thing we contended with that I didn't think about was the number of uh, vehicles on the range that wanted to launch, or in the case of the uh, SLS rocket that wanted to do a wet dress. And we were trying to thread the needle between processing of our vehicle, a wet dress, the launch of another SpaceX flight prior to our mission, crew, and then us launching, mm-hmm. and then us landing, mm-hmm. and then another another SpaceX flight, and then crew four launch, and crew three landing, all the way leading up to the Boeing's uh, demo flight, which they were trying. So when we got to, we finally got launched, which was good. And we got to orbit. We started discussing how long do we absolutely have to be on orbit. Mm-hmm. And we agreed, okay, weather looked, seemed like it looked reasonable for the normal departure day. Uh, so we settled on normal departure day. And then sure enough, uh, the weather gods kicked in and kept us on orbit a, a bit longer. So it's probably, it's been a while since I dealt with range issues. Yeah. And that was probably the one that, I don't know if it caught me by surprise, but I certainly wasn't expecting it in my mind. It was pretty remarkable to see all of those vehicles out on the pad side by side when the photographers lined them up and you could actually see a lot of them from space. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a cool, cool picture having the Axiom Dragon SpaceX vehicle on one pad and SLS on the other. That was just, that was an awesome, awesome view. Yeah, it's a, a good time to be alive for if you're if you are a if you nerd out about launch vehicles that's for sure (laughs) that's right obviously you spent a decade as a program manager at nasa for the iss can you tell me a little bit about how that informed your decision in 2016 or maybe in the run-up to 2016 to start this company and can you tell me about what the reactions were like back then when you started talking about wanting to build a commercially owned and operated space station now if i look back it's like almost 40 years i've been in human spaceflight and i've been in the iss program for 20 years total the last 10 years like you said as the program manager so when I decided to retire and, and do something different, I didn't decide to retire. Technically, mm-hmm. I retired from the agency, but really I decided I wanted to, it was time to do something different. 
it was really a hard decision because the ISS is such a unique an incredible vehicle and by any measure has been wildly successful. And it was a difficult decision, but really it was one of these things I tripped over. Really, Dr. Cam Gaffarian and I had a relationship. We would talk every so often about what I wanted to do when I'd grow up. And, um, and really we talked about a number of things, but eventually we got to the point where Cam owned a company called SGT, yep. and they're like the second largest services provider to NASA at the time. He's since sold the company to KBR, but during that time, so he, only, so he kept trying to think of things I could do in SGT. And of course, having been the front row seat of some of the most exciting things that happened in human spaceflight, mm-hmm. that just didn't seem that exciting to me. And of course, I was in no hurry to leave, so I was like, eh. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finally I told him, he, he said, well, what do you want to do? Which I thought was interesting. That's probably where it would have started. But when you're doing a job like that, you're not really thinking much about that. You're enjoying the job you have. So I hadn't considered it, but I went home and thought about it. And I came, called him back. I said, Cam, okay, the only thing I know how to do is build and operate a space station. <laughs> so I think I'll wait. I'm surely some commercial company is going to decide to do a commercial space station. And then maybe that's where I'll end up going. Because at that point now, the agency had said they're going to cede low Earth orbit to commercial industry. Yep. And they still needed low Earth orbit. So basically, they were sending out the signal that we're not going to build another space station. We plan to use commercial, and we have a need for commercial for forever. Right. So with that said, Cam said, all right, well, let me think about it. I, didn't, I thought we were closing out our conversation. But he said, well, let me think about it. And he called me back probably the next day and said, okay, I'm in. Let's go build a space station. So. <laughs> That's really kind of how we started. He seeded the company and we were off to the races. So it happened just like that. It wasn't like I'd been pining over building, you know, running a company right. that built a space station. We just decided that the ducks were kind of aligned and, and we thought, well, we'll just go, let's go do that. You had a particularly unique skill set in terms of building and launching space stations. There's not that many people out there who are really proficient in that. Well, uh, there are a very capable people out there, yeah. um, the folks that preceded me and the ones that followed me. But I am unique in that I spent 10 years, and I'm the longest tenured ISS program manager. But it really did inform all of my decisions about how we would build the station, what we didn't have to do anymore, how we would save costs, where you can make significant changes and still be just as safe every day. Uh, it's my experience with NASA and ultimately the last 10 years as program manager that I learned so much and I apply it to every decision we make in terms of the design of the space station and how we operate everything. It's just, it is amazing. And I've seen the best and the worst Mm -hmm. of uh, how you do it. And it's really informed pretty much everything we do in the company. It's been an amazing ride so far and it's fun to be able to apply a lot of what you learned along the way. Yeah, I think that's actually a great point to dig in on a little bit because this all goes hand in glove with a lot of the commercial programs that have taken shape in recent years. And I did want to ask you, the ISS is the most expensive kind of object, most complex probably, I would wager too, that we, the humanity has ever built. And of course, that doesn't come cheap, but... There are also all of these research, there are all of these benefits that we've had over the past two plus decades um, of having 
continued access to low Earth orbit and and whatnot. But I am curious to hear as we sit on the precipice of all of these new stations going up. Well, a couple new stations going up. Where do you think, having done this once, there are those improvements and abilities to be more efficient? And again, this is in no way, by any means, a slight toward the ISS. It's the first time you do anything of that magnitude. It's going to be hard. And at every single step of the way, you're dealing with bleeding edge technology. And it's not cheap to get to get up there into orbit. Yeah, and that's an excellent question. It's also what separates us from a lot of other companies, what it is we do to be able to do those things. We don't generally talk about specifics too much, mm -hmm. but it's real easy um, to see some of the differences. First of all, we were, relatively speaking, very young in human spaceflight when ISS got started. And so everything we built, we built it like it was a rocket engine. And we put a we used space qualified parts. So everything was triply redundant. We spent a lot of money building things. The technology was such that a lot of our major systems had to be outside. The Russians put them all inside, mm -hmm. but it was still big components. So if you've seen the inside of an FGB, for instance, you go, wow, that's a pretty small corridor. Well, that's because all their a large part of their hardware is inside. ISS, they just put them on the U.S. segment. They just put the components outside, which makes it very expensive to repair uh, and replace. Spacewalks are an expensive endeavor <clears throat> in terms of time, well, in terms of resources yeah. and, and time being one of, the, one of the biggest. So technology has evolved immensely. Our understanding of human spaceflight has evolved immensely. What we can do in orbit, how big a role radiation plays in low Earth orbit when you're inside a spacecraft. All these things, we've learned a lot with ISS. And so that tells you just right away, it tells you, you know, what you can and can't do on orbit. And there's so much that we can do inside a platform, given where technology is right. uh, today. As you know, ISS uses laptops as one of the one of the things towards the end of my career with ISS, we had transitioned to a laptop you could buy online. That was kind of my criteria was, let's go find a laptop. You just buy how you want off the it. Shelf. And, and we'll launch it right off the shelf. Yeah. And what you do is you go, you, you buy a couple of them and you do some specific types of testing and you decide its sensitivities. And once you find one or two versions that are pretty robust, then you say, okay, that's the laptop for me. And we just bought it online. And, and there's so many other areas you can do that. Also, the way it's built, ISS is built, uh, provides some challenges from a user standpoint. Mm -hmm. A lot of that feeds into our design today. We're triply redundant, but we're triply redundant because we have users. User loses, if we lose power to one of our channels, the user can't go down. So we have hot backups for everything. But that plays another role for you because when you set it up where everything's a hot backup, then when you lose, let's say you lose a computer, so your backup uh, kicks in, the user doesn't miss a beat, then the, then the system can tell you, this is the computer that failed, here's where the spare's located, here's the procedure to fix it, and you need to do it in the next 24, 48 hours, whatever we, we decide. Now the crew's completely auto automated. They don't have to call the ground and find out how to do it because everything's inside. Right. There's a lot of things like that that you either A, couldn't do because of the technology or because of your knowledge at that time, 
your experience at that time that we all now get to benefit from for all future space stations. And that's a big, big deal. We're a $3 billion space station, roughly the same volume as the U.S. segment. And that was $100 billion, give or take. Right. There's a big difference when you can take advantage of all those lessons that were learned. And by the way, I'm not trashing ISS. She's my baby. So (laughs) I'm perfectly happy to talk about what we learned without feeling like I'm degrading ISS. Oh, no, certainly, certainly. What, how do you decide what to buy versus build? That's a great question. And it and you end up building a lot because of schedule and cost. So we go out to the market. First of all, we try to buy known components. So mm-hmm. we don't go design special wiring and ask somebody to build it. We go find the wiring that will meet our needs, and then we procure that. Same with most of the parts. When it comes to systems, we try very much to go out to industry and get systems built for us. Generally speaking, because it's onesie, twosie builds, right? Not There's there's not a ton of oxygen generators being built out there, for instance, Mm -hmm. that if you can make it yourself, you generally get, you you end up there. So today it's hard to tell you a number, right? but I tell you probably of the systems we'll have inside and now I'm talking about systems that have to be designed by somebody because we buy computers off the shelf, for instance. Yeah. So, but the systems we have to design or build probably will buy about 20%, mm-hmm. something okay. like that. Okay. Now, the rest of them we'll build in-house. And it's not because we feel like we can do it better than anybody else. It's because either it was so critical. So, so we're building all of our own thrusters. Mm-hmm. That's because we have so many thrusters. And if we need to make any changes at all or anything hiccups we can control the line so we don't have to wait in line for somebody else to get their thrusters before somebody gets around to fixing ours so that's a driver another driver is just cost so many things are very expensive for people to build for you right and the other is schedule just takes so long for people to do it for you either because they got other things to do or they just take a long time to do it that those things drive things in house which is fun i can't tell you how much fun we're having as engineers to get to build design and build our own hardware and it's just driven by the economics of it, really. Yeah. So I assume you would say that, to borrow one of the industry's favorite terms, you vertically integrated? <laughs> yes. We vertically integrated. And that is a term that I don't use very often. Yeah. But yes, yeah. We're, so, well, technically speaking, we're very vertically integrated. I, I, I put the words in your mouth. But <clears throat> I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think especially... Now, with all of the supply chain issues and more macro factors, that having that type of model allows you to control your destiny a lot better. Exactly. Exactly. And you can see how companies like SpaceX get there. It's exactly for that reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have much more control of your own destiny. It's a much better way to go if you can do it. Right. So I am going to turn back the page again and to quote the payload newsletter from November when I was writing about your research portfolio for the X1 mission when it was just announced. I wrote that Mm -hmm. Rome and space stations aren't built in a day. The privatization of human spaceflight activities in LEO takes time. While the gradual handoff happens, NASA will be a key partner for Axiom and others as uh, an anchor customer and orbital host. And I want to use that as a jumping off point for the key milestones that you have in your roadmap for going from where we are today, having had the first all commercial trip. 
to the module in 2024, I believe, to eventually uh, later in the decade d detaching and becoming a free flying station. So can you walk me through the, the key steps? No, absolutely. We talked about it in terms of phases. So phase one is utilizing the International Space Station before our modules start to arrive, before we start assembly of our station attached to ISS. That's from now till, till the end of 2024. During that period, we uh, can use uh, the National Lab Access to do uh, research, but primarily what we're doing is we're flying customers, and, and which includes not only individuals, but their research and even some manufacturing to the International Space Station. So AX-1, of course, was our first flight, although we've had missions on orbit through National Lab before that, mm -hmm. and it was pretty healthy. We did something like 25 individual experiments, which really kept the crew very busy on board. It was a blessing that we were extended because I'm not sure they would have been exhausted when they landed and hadn't had much time to look outside given how much work they took on. In, in addition to that, NASA had some stuff they needed us to bring up and bring home for them, mm -hmm. uh, which we did. So that was very helpful, and we expect other missions to look that way. Our next mission is another short-duration one, this time with not only private astronauts but uh, professional astronauts. Mm -hmm. The third mission is probably a shorter mission, although right now today we call it the movie flight, but it's like the movie flight's likely to move to the right a little bit. So the third one will be short. <clears throat> And then our fourth one will be all professional flight. These flights are flights that we can go to ISS because NASA has a spot, but they only have a couple of spots a year total. Okay. And so it's limited. So the reason why it's limited is docking ports and life support. Right. So when our first module shows up in 2024, that's phase two for us. This is the part where we're a segment on ISS. And the first module, we add a docking port and life support for four crew. About six to eight months later, we had our second module, which is identical. So it's got four more crew and another docking port. So now we're, we added two docking ports and eight life and eight crew spots. So now we've taken care of that um, constraint and we can now fly basically as fast as we can. I think the demand will be such that we'll fly probably more often than SpaceX and Boeing has vehicles. Yeah. And at that point now, we continue to grow our station until about the end of the decade, as you said. And towards the end of the decade, when ISS is ready to retire, we'll separate when ISS retires. Okay. So when ISS is getting close to retirement, we start moving everything on ISS that wants to stay on orbit over to, the, to our space station, help deconfigure the ISS, and then we separate out and ISS retires and deorbits and we stay on orbit. And that part, we call that part uh, phase three, and that's where we fly. A standalone and the station's very evolvable so during this period we're probably growing based on customer demand mm -hmm. eventually manufacturing is going to get to the point where the manufacturers will want their own modules you won't want to stay in a multi-purpose spacecraft although again we can evolve to be very big uh, as multi so we as a multi-purpose spacecraft so we'll build uh, purpose-built stations we expect the military to be a customer as well and so we can do it both ways. Some countries and companies will want their own module, which attaches to ours. In fact, we're doing that with an entertainment company today. We're building a module for an entertainment star ISS. We'll get to that. <laughs> and then we'll also be, during this period, we'll be building uh, purpose-built platforms for, for specific users that will launch and activate and can operate if they want us to. 
eventually our big plan is in the second half of the century is that uh, you begin building uh, a space city. It's a very large rotating station where the center stays still because mm-hmm. you got to have the microgravity, but the outer is where where everybody lives. And really at that point, you can, when you go to work for two or three years in space, you can bring your family and because it's rotating, you can have parks and stores and schools and movies, theaters and all that kind of stuff. And so that's the way we see the future in low Earth orbit. It seems straight out of a science fiction novel or movie, but you have to start somewhere, right? Well, that's just it. The movies always start with the rotating station. <laughs> yep. They don't show you how you got yeah. there. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, they skipped that part because to lay the groundwork for that final movie, you would need a Fast and Furious length franchise. <laughs> that's good. I like that. Yeah, it'd be a whole franchise. Time for a short break to hear about our sponsors again. Space is the new frontier for cybersecurity. Spider Oak Mission Systems builds space cybersecurity solutions for civilian, military, and commercial space operations. Their Orbit Secure protocol delivers zero trust security to zero gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity at the data level. To learn more about how zero trust architectures will revolutionize security in new space, download the new NSR Spider Oak sponsored white paper titled Space Cybersecurity, Current State and Future Needs. Find the white paper at spacecyber.com. Again, that's spacecyber.com. Or check out their website at spideroak-ms.com. And tell them Pathfinder sent you. So actually, let's pivot to the business considerations. That's mm-hmm. this is a perfect time to do so. When that paradigm shift or, or pendulum swing, I suppose, happens, and I might be contradicting myself here because as we've already established, it's a gradual phase, but... I think in phase three, that's when NASA and the other partners would theoretically become owner operators to becoming customers or users, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Can you walk me through how you are going to market now and selling both the existing services or, or products you offer, but also these slots and basically orbital real estate down the road later this decade? What does that process look like? Yeah, it's interesting. I got to back up a little bit to talk about that. But when we were working with NASA, and NASA asked a lot of questions in an RFI prior to the contract that was let, that ultimately we won, Mm -hmm. uh, to be attached to ISS, we spent a lot of time talking about how this needed to be done. And what we told NASA was, you can't do this like commercial cargo and commercial crew. Because commercial cargo and commercial crew, NASA by themselves was the customer. Mm -hmm. And by themselves, it was a lucrative business for the providers or could have been. So we it spent a lot of time because some of the NASA people we were talking to were thinking commercial crew and commercial cargo. And some of them were thinking more like space station people. But the the point is, there is not enough demand from the agency in the early times while you're building it. And not only that, unless people are really motivated to help build the demand, build the market. And building the market's not because there's not something there. It's because the market doesn't realize that it's there. So we said, no, you need to do this so that you fund a little bit. And in our case, it's for 
uh, data and insight and demonstrations, but none of their money goes to development. Mm -hmm. And there's a that's good for us too because we own all intellectual property, or said differently, our customers own all their intellectual property. So that's the that's you got to set that groundwork. So with that in mind, our big lot in life is to get out there and grow the market, introduce it to areas where they're not familiar with it, and help grow it in other areas like pharmaceutical that is aware of it but doesn't have much access. Yeah. And so we that's what we spend a that's what we spend a ton of our time on is working with individuals, countries, and companies to to do early work. And we saw this starting with AX1. There's some early, quite a few early efforts to demonstrate capability that ultimately turns into something that they can, can sell uh, on the market. And that's our early customer base. I mean, countries that don't have access, countries that have access, but it's so limited that they and they want more. Like Italy and Hungary are talking to us, and they're part of the ISS partnership, but they don't have enough as much access as they'd like. Italy, in particular, wants to get into the commercial side, so it's been you know very lucrative yeah. for us to work with them. And then you've got this market that's out there, and you know what automobile company is sitting there going, "Wow, that high critically that critically that critical component in my engine." that's limiting the performance, I could build that in space, but they're not thinking that way. But the right. fact is, if you build the space, it's twice as strong as it's cousin on the ground. And our job is to go talk to them and work that in a way that gets a lot of visibility and gets other players to come. And we do that for a number of things. And we're excited about what we did on AX1. It was just the beginning, but that's really the early market. We're not even talking to NASA today about their business. Okay. Because we just figure that NASA, A, can't commit right now, mm -hmm. and B, we're attached. We're figuring that whatever's on ISS, they're not going to want to throw it all away. So we'll just we'll move over when the time comes. Now, their risk, and we've talked to them about this, so I'm not, not saying we're not talking to them, but their risk is if they don't reserve their space, it's conceivable we could become fully subscribed and they wouldn't have access. So we, of course, won't let that happen. Right. but. That's probably the next thing they need to start thinking about is how are they going to, what do they want to do to make sure there's space available for them to do what they want to do on orbit? I don't know if that helped or not. That does help. That's a really, it's a fascinating frame of reference because even as you look toward Leo and all the constellations going up and there's talk of congestion, but there's still a lot of space in Leo and Launch vehicles, same situation, probably still even less less space. But when it comes to space, station space is the most finite resource just because of all of the various complexity and all of the costs and, and, and all of the resources that you need to, to sustain that. And I never thought about that. Can you say a bit about how you are breaking down various business segments or possible revenue streams, whatever you want to call it? So we have sub segments. Now I'm not going to be a jerk, but I, a lot of this I won't tell you in much detail, just because well, this is our bread and butter. It's, but, it's just the secret sauce. No, understood. Right, but I'll give you some examples. So when we think about research, we break it up into fundamental research and applied research. So applied research to us is research leading to manufacturing, and so that's what we really focus on. We'll do fundamental research. We're happy to do it if somebody wants to, and we do have some customers like that. But really, for us. We're focusing on applied research. What we do is we help them get to orbit. We help them with their experiments. We help them do their demonstrations. 
And then in the end, when they get around to selling whatever the product is they sell, we have some royalties. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of our business model and we focus on manufacturing. Then there's service industries out there like intelligence community, department of defense. Those guys are, are markets. There's a big edge computing piece that's out there. Edge computing, this is the idea is we've got so many satellites and so much data trying to come down. Now the thought is, hey, let's take the data, process it on orbit and just send down the result that people are looking for. That's an area that we've focused on, of course, Working with countries is one of our big things, and countries are about doing research and flying to space, gaining experience. But once we get a little further along, there'll be the exploration piece of it. This is yep. where we're testing technologies and then demonstrating systems. What's going to be different in the future is going to be, so if you've got a life support system that you've got to use to get crew to Mars and back, it kind of suck if it only lasted nine months. And we found that on ISS, some of these multi-phase fluid systems, they don't show you their design flaws until months into it. And we've proven that on orbit. So we not only are we going to have to do more technology development and demonstration, but we're going to have to then do system uh, maturation, we call it, mm -hmm. where a life support system comes to orbit, we turn it on, we have it run for several years. So those are a handful of the efforts. now. To us, uh, you're going to ask me this later, but I'll tell you now, but to us, the big thing that's going to really change our lives, I believe, is going to be manufacturing this space. Yeah. There are going to be, there will be products across all industries. You read my mind. That when you, when, yeah, when you make it in orbit, you can't make it as good on the ground. You never will be able to make it as good until we figure out how to create microgravity on the ground. But until then, you just can't, you can't do it on the ground. Making organs, 3D printing of organs is going to be a pain in the ass on the ground. Yeah. You can't do that. Scaffolding is going to screw everything up. But on, in space, you can do that. And there's a long list of products that you can only do in space. And so I think that's going to over time, and it's across multiple industries. And so I think that's going to be the big swinger for us all is once that starts to take hold. Yeah, and, and so... Examples would be organs, pharmaceuticals, fiber optic cables, semiconductors. I, it's fascinating because I'm sure you have so much visibility. Any structure. Yeah, and any structure. Into the, all of these yeah. nascent business models that maybe aren't quite there yet, but could soon ver become very, very real. And I often say success for us, the measure of success, when in every boardroom across the manufacturing business world, which includes pharmaceuticals in our mind, that's a $30 trillion business, $30 trillion business today. That's including, if you include pharmaceuticals, $30 trillion manufacturing business. When, the, when every company that's involved in that is at least sitting in their board going, is this the right year for us to start producing the product in space? That's when we'll be successful. Yeah, that's a, a lot of TAM. <clears throat> Do you take, yeah. I, I, I know, yeah. I've noticed that you, in, in previous comments, you've called theoretical potential customers of the station users. And that's a really common practice in the tech world. And another tech analogy, I guess I would say, is defining a platform as, you know, it, it specifically within the technology context, it is something that supports all of these applications that with the sum, some of its parts, the value 
of what it's supporting is greater than the actual tool itself. And I'm slightly somewhat butchering that definition, but do you also think about the station in, in that way and just the total amount of value that it will create based on what your users and partners are doing up there? Yes, it's in, in the best analogy that I like to, well, I think it's the best analogy, I could be wrong, is the internet. So we created the internet, we had all these great things, reasons why it's good and what we thought would happen. And when, when I first heard it, I thought, wow, I can look almost anything up online, look at that data. Mm -hmm. And you would have never imagined, we never imagined what we do today with the internet. And the internet was access to data and people. That's what it basically was. And any kid with a good idea and a little bit of programming skills could build a tool or a product to sell. And millions of them did and do today. So when you get to orbit, you're talking about a limitless amount of microgravity. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the internet, relatively inexpensive for you to jump in and create a tool that's doing crazy things like they're doing today. But that's part of our effort. And we, in fact, we're, we have a entity that invests in newcomers that don't have much money but have a good idea. We're trying to prime that part of the market as well where we get people so energized about space and microgravity that they that that particularly younger I'm not picking on us old farts but you know what I mean you get kids in school with a lot of energy and a lot of crazy ideas and if we can get microgravity turned on in their heads and very clear that there's a pace there is a place where you do this relatively inexpensively where we help you get to orbit and get started it'll explode. It'll be just like the internet. It'll explode. And it's because you're providing the infrastructure to access this limitless amount of, in this case, microgravity, just like the internet was limitless access to data and people. That, that's a helpful analogy. And I can definitely see how that sort of educational outreach and kind of market push could lead to some great things down the road. On the topic of the business and capital requirements. You're not pre-revenue, which helps. And you mentioned that you are in the process of raising your Series C. I'm curious if you can share any more into just what the initial capital outlay, maybe a ballpark estimate, because you're not going to want to give me exact numbers, but just how much of an investment is required to get to 20, 2024 or phase two, I don't know, whatever milestone uh, you prefer. Well, we said out loud, it'll take us about $3 billion to build the station that we've laid out. That's, that's which volumetrically and internal volume wise is about the size of the U S segment, a little bit bigger than the U S segment right. is today. So that's a common figure we put out there. Uh, we don't talk too much about how much of that is investment yeah. and how much comes from revenue. But let me just say a very sizable uh, piece of that CapEx comes from our revenue. Okay. And this I'll, year I'll alone, it. yeah, this year alone, I think we'll have over a billion dollars in contracts by the end of 22 uh, already. You can kind of get the yeah. Yeah. sort of the magnitude. People love to use Tesla as a a canonical sort of example here of a company that starts up market 
and uses that cash flow to eventually scale production, bring costs down, and release more affordable products. And the equation is not the same, of course, when you're talking about literally going to space. But based on all of this visibility across the entire ecosystem that you have and the decades of experience you have, do you see that, do you think that model holds? Yeah, and I like to use, well, Tesla's a great example. Uh, Amazon is the example I like to use. And the reason why I like to use Amazon is Amazon took a loss for like 17 years. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they were growing like a weed, but they were positioning themselves to be the provider in a certain market uh, share. Now, not only it's a little, no, I'm not going to say it's easy. What Jeff has done in, in Amazon is nothing short of Herculean, but it's really the idea that you have to start somewhere with something that people want and understand and you provide it to them in a new way. And then you start multiplying that across different customer bases. So with in Amazon's case, they started with books. It didn't take long for that to get very easy for people to understand. Yeah, it's just a book. It'll be shipped to me. It costs me less mm -hmm. uh, to do it. It's going to show up in my house in a few days. How bad can it be? It was easy for people to jump into. And then next thing you know, Amazon is selling everything, literally everything over several years. And that took a lot of money to set up, but they established themselves. Well, I use Amazon because you can go online, get it cheaper and get it here tomorrow. And I can wait till tomorrow to get my stuff. And so I think of it the same way for us, right? Today, the most obvious market people understand is the people to space. It is not. That is not the market that's going to blow us all away. Yeah, it's going to be the it's going to be the manufacturing that blows us all away. At least I think so. Again, this is pre-internet conversation we're having yeah. here, so I don't know what the hell it's going to really. Be. It's hard to anticipate. But that's my sense. And but early on, you start with the product that people understand and want, and there's demand for, and that's the way I look at it. And I mean, Tesla's same thing. It's about creating a market that people want, and then getting them energized to go buy it, and then providing the product in a way that's cost effective and if, and they lose losing money early too, mm -hmm. right? While they build these things and said they were going to be cheap. And of course they're not cheap at all now, but they've got, you know, there's a fever pitch of people wanting Teslas and they've been building them for so long now they're pretty good at yeah. it. And so it's the same kind of thing. It's just, just now it's going to be in space. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Besides for the, the small task of going, sending the first commercial mission to the ISS, you've had a steady drip of announcements or partner announcements. A few months ago, I think there was an announcement about Tom Cruise. I mean, there's been a ton, but I have to ask about Tom Cruise. Well, let's see. The, the movie flight is the worst kept secret in the industry, <laughs> and there's still some work to be done. I can't say too much yeah. about that other than to say that because of the intricate nature, because the fact that it is a, a relatively, it's meant to be a you know feature-length film and the implications that has on NASA and how they want to do the film, it's taking a little longer to get ready to go do that yeah. than... And we initially planned. So 
That's probably evolving to the right, but again, we'll refer to it as a movie flight. So that's evolving to the right, but that's not uh, for lack of interest. Yeah. That's just uh, the time it takes to get everything done. And then there's been other things going on independent mm. of us getting ready for a movie flight. There are other things going on by the studio and the actors that has kept them from being quite ready yet. So you'll, there'll be more to come on that one. Gotcha. Mike, you're a busy man. You have plenty of work to do. Before we hop off here, I just want to ask you some more rapid-fire questions. I think that it's interesting to just see the lighter side of people, even as they're you know running space unicorns and whatnot. And I want to start the, the rapid-fire question with, since I'm speaking to a fellow Longhorn, if memory serves. <laughs> yes. Uh, what, yes. Was your, what was your favorite part about... Uh, attending the University uh, of Texas. Oh, man. Uh, watching Earl Campbell run like water my first year I was there in 77. It was awesome. Love it. Love it. Probably one of my favorite ones, yeah. And as a kid or broody teenager or even a young adult, what was the moment when you decided to dive headfirst into space? Or was it less intentional and decisive and more just falling into that space or happenstance yeah so aerospace engineering was because i liked drum roll high performance jet aircraft that's what <laughs> i went into aerospace engineering for I'm sure you're I not left. i'm sure you're not the only one <laughs> yeah so when i came out you interview with i don't know a dozen companies and i loved what was going on in human space flight and decided and because design engineering, I was offered things like, hey, go design a turbine blade for an air conditioner for a helicopter. I was like, that does not sound like fun to me. So, yeah, I jumped into uh, to human space flight. I, I was aware of everything that had gone around, but really I jumped to human space flight um, somewhere in the middle of studying for aerospace engineering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And favorite sci-fi book or movie? Well, my favorite book, I got to say, is 2001. I still, and, and even as a movie, it was so well done by uh, Stanley Kubrick. You can't let that one go. Although I love The Martian. Yeah. So I must say, I love both the book and the, and the movie. Good choices. Good choices. And I anticipate for future podcast guests, we won't have such a heavy Texas tilt to all these questions, but <laughs> what is, you know, down the road in Houston, either in Houston or in Texas, what's your favorite barbecue spot? Well, if you come to Texas and only barbecue, you can be forgiven, but you also have to think about Tex-Mex. Okay. Okay. Um, my favorite no, no, barbecue no, hey. spot. Well, let's get both. I, I'm one of your both. Uh, let's see. Don Pico's okay. is my favorite Mexican food place. And uh, there's a little place called Red River Barbecue down here in League City, Texas, that we love to go to, and a lot of people do. So those are those are the two. Awesome. Well, I hope that this podcast drives at least some business there, and some people uh, take you up on that. We'll let let you get back to work, but just want to end by saying thanks so much for coming on, Mike. This has been fun. It's my pleasure, and. Uh... You know, I don't know if customers will come, but if people just start thinking about what we're doing, that's uh, that's half the battle right there. So that's awesome. And we look forward to flying you to space sometime soon, Ryan. I am counting down the days. All righty, y'all. You haven't gotten your Texas fix yet. You sure have now. That is all we have for Pathfinder 0001. I'm holding Mike to his word, and I'm expecting my Axiom tickets to show up in the mail sometime this decade. If it slips to the 2030s, it's not the end of the world. 
If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe for future episodes and leave us a five-star rating wherever you're listening to this. We have a long way to go to dethrone Joe Rogan as the world's most popular podcast, but hey, you got to start somewhere, right? Thanks so much for tuning in and thank you for joining us on this Pathfinder journey powered by Payload. TM. I'm Ryan Duffy signing off and I'll see you back here next week.